Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome to today's episode of Myeloma Crowd Radio, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers and the latest in myeloma advances. I'm your host, Jenny Alstrom. Today's program is our 80th, which is a bit of a departure from what we are usually used to. We'll be speaking with Dr. Stephen Pearson, the founder and president of the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, or ICER, which is currently formulating recommendations of the effectiveness and value of treatments for relapsed and refractory myeloma. This Thursday, in a couple days, ICER's Midwest Comparative Effectiveness Public Advisory Council will hold hold a meeting in St. Louis to review and vote on recommendations regarding its report on the effectiveness and value of treatment options for relapsed and refractory myeloma. The final report is scheduled to be released on June 24th. So, Dr. Pearson, welcome. Thank you very much, Jenny, and I hope you'll feel comfortable calling me Steve. Oh, okay. Well... I usually call them doctor, <laughs> so and I know you are one, so I might just do that because I respect whatever, whatever the, you, the effort that goes makes, into that. <laughs> totally fine, whatever makes you most comfortable. Thank okay. you for having me on your on your call. All right. Well, before we get started, let me um, just give a little bio about you. Sure. Um, Dr. Pearson received his degree at the University of California San Francisco School of Medicine. He completed his residency in internal medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and obtained a Master's of Science degree in Health Policy and Management at the Harvard School of Public Health. His experience includes serving in many advisory and leadership roles in academia and government, including a fellowship with the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, also known as NICE, in the United Kingdom. He served as Special Advisor to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. He's a Senior Fellow at America's Health Insurance Plans. Vice Chair of the Medicare Evidence Development and Coverage Advisory Committee from 2007 to 2009 and was a member of the Board of Directors of Health Technology Assessment International from 2010 to 2013. Now, I know this is not a comprehensive um, CV by any chance, but I think this gives our audience uh, just a sense of your professional background. So before we, or to, to begin today, I think it would be really helpful to our audience to get a sense of two things. So first, can you explain why ICER was created and uh, what its mission is? Mm-hmm. And secondly, explain some of the highlights of this report on myeloma and what it might mean to newly approved drugs. Sure, thanks, thanks again. So um, ICER is the acronym. It stands for Institute for Clinical and Economic Review. Um, I started it about 10 years ago. It was for most of its life, actually, we were an academic research group at Harvard Medical School. And the goal was to try to figure out if we could do a better job of um, creating reviews of evidence that would do a couple of things. One would be to engage with stakeholders. And I know that word is far overused, but you know that includes the manufacturers, it includes patient groups, it includes the clinical societies. 
Um, because up till that point, um, most of the health technology assessments that were being funded, at least by the government, had a very, very strict kind of process where they kept these groups at, at really arm's length. So we wanted to try to do a better job of doing evidence reviews that really engaged with everybody. Second, um, and perhaps most distinctive, you know, everybody kind of looks at the you know, evidence on clinical effectiveness. Part of our mission, we felt, was to explore ways to bring in information about cost effectiveness, about potential budget impact, you know, broadly speaking, trying to bring in information that could help people make a, a broader judgment about value and have that discussed in public. So from the beginning, we've had our reports um, basically debated um, by public bodies that we convene, you know, we, we kind of recruit um, independent uh, clinical, you know, experts in methodology. Um, we actually have patient and public representatives on all of our groups. And, you know, we kind of have a public hearing where, you know, this evidence can be discussed. We can talk about how we wrestle with interpreting evidence on especially new things, but sometimes we look at old things. Um, and then we do have a public discussion with stakeholders around the table, including patients and insurers and manufacturers around, you know, so how do we think of working together to move the evidence into the healthcare system? What would it mean for you know, what patient educational materials might, you know, be needed or, you know, that aren't there already. Are there ways for patients to get involved with research? You know, what are the future research needs? Uh, we do talk about, you know, how, how might insurers uh, adapt this evidence into their coverage policies? Because, I mean, a lot of people don't really understand how coverage policies are made today, but for a lot of health insurers, you know, they have a small internal team of people trying to keep track of all of the evidence and making coverage decisions. And, and you know, and what we try to do is to, to bring a more rigorous and transparent process to at least providing information into that process. Um, but we also, again, we don't shy away from what we feel are some of the key issues, which is, you know, what does the value mean here? What if it looks like it's a great long-term value but it's very expensive in the short term? How will the healthcare system deal with that? What are some of the options? Uh, what are the implications? So we have a both kind of a very technical mission, which is to provide what we hope are very scientifically rigorous evaluations. We have a broader ethical mission um, to, to try to bring this information in a way that engages people around a more honest discussion about evidence and value across our entire healthcare system. So we don't look at just drugs. Actually, we've been pivoting a bit because you know, drug you know, issues around value have been really kind of highlighted over the past few years. But we do reports on things like integrating behavioral health into primary care, um, bringing community health workers into the healthcare system. Um, we do some devices as well. And I, we did a report recently on palliative care, again, looking at issues of the effectiveness for patients and, and the value. So that's, and now I should say, we, we were academic until about two years ago when the fact that, you know, we were at Harvard Medical School, but we were kind of physically part of a hospital, the Mass General Hospital, and people started to wonder if we were biased because we were in a hospital. Um, so we decided to become an independent nonprofit foundation at that point. And about 70% of all of our funding comes from nonprofit foundations, the lion's share from a foundation called the Laura and John Arnold Foundation in Texas. About 30%, which none of that, none of the 30% goes to the development of our reports, but we have a separate kind of policy summit um, process um, for manufacturers and for health plans so that they can meet once a year 
take off their ties and hopefully uh, do some serious work together. Um, and we have some evidence dial kind of webinars. Anyway, that's about 30% of our funding that comes from a mix from manufacturers and from health plans. But our reports are funded by these nonprofit foundations. So that's ICER, and glad to answer more questions about it. And I will say that in the current context of you know the national landscape, um, issues around drug pricing have become very political. Um, no big surprise to any of you. So ICER is taking a fair amount of, of scrutiny, which we expect. We try to be as transparent as possible. Everything on our website hopefully makes it under, easy to understand who we are and what we're trying to do. Um, but there's been a fair amount of misinformation, actually, that's come out, especially recently. And partly that's because Medicare cited us as one potential source of information for a future version of payment for injectable drugs. And as you, many of you know, that Part B demonstration, as it's called, has been very controversial. So we've kind of gotten wrapped into that, uh, into that echo chamber. So our multiple myeloma came up because, um, there, as you know, there have been some fantastic innovations, and several of them were kind of bunched together, some new drugs, elitizumab and um, Ninlaro. Sorry, I jump back and forth sometimes between the generic and the trade names. Um, and Carfizolib was out, you know, not too long ago. So there was a lot of interest in, um, in a variety of quadrants about what can we know about these new drugs from the evidence so far, where the evidence gaps, um, and, again, for us, you know, what do we think about the value? What can we try to estimate about the long-term benefits and costs for these drugs? What does that mean for how the prices, do the prices align well with what we think are the benefits to patients? Are they way off the charts? Are some, you know, much more kind of out of alignment, if you will, than others? So those are the kinds of questions that we try to address um, in our report. And I, do you want me to go through just briefly what we found, or would that take too much time? Um, no, that would be fine. Okay. Our executive summary, I know it's not written for patients. Um, many of you are, are very sophisticated and could probably uh, grasp every bit of it. Um, but these are not intended, you know, to be the thing that a, a patient would read before going in to talk to uh, his or her doctor. So um, I hope people don't get the wrong feeling that that's what we're trying to do. We do make patient versions um, sometimes when you know, we are told that it might be helpful, but I hope you don't get turned off by the fact that it's, it's fairly technical. What we found um, in large was that the evidence for um, the new drugs um, is adequate to suggest that they do provide a net health benefit. Net health benefit for us means that the, the benefits in terms of lengthening life uh, for most patients will outweigh the, the side effects. And you guys are all well aware that none of these drugs basically come without side effects. So for carfilzomib, elotizumib, and ixazomib, that's the Nlaro, um, we judged, again, for both second and third line that the evidence suggested that it was at least, at least a little bit better than existing treatments and could be a lot better. We had more doubts about some of the evidence around um, panobinostat, that's Feridac, and uh, Pomalist. Uh, yeah, pomalidomide. Mm -hmm. um, we felt that the, well, you know, they're not even, um, the FDA label doesn't even include second-line therapy anyway, but even for third-line, we just felt that there were more questions about the, the, the patient selection, the comparator treatment in the trials. So our judgment was that, um, that, that the evidence was promising but still inconclusive 
for the net health benefit for those two. And for daratumumab, um, we, we felt that, that that's the drug that came through the FDA with a relatively small single-arm trial without any comparison, um, which always makes it very difficult to judge the comparative clinical effectiveness. Um, and so it doesn't mean that the FDA was wrong, um, but we judged that w there was insufficient evidence for us to be able to judge its comparative clinical effectiveness. And as far as the, the you know, the value, um, when we're looking at the long-term cost effectiveness, and we worked with an academic group at the University of Washington that had done a lot of work in multiple myeloma before um, building a mo what's called an, a model to kind of simulate long-term uh, kind of clinical outcomes and costs. Um, we found that, um, th that the drug seemed to be priced higher, at least their list price. Uh, for some of the existing drugs, their WAC price, but their, their list price is certainly higher than uh, a price that would meet kind of what are considered to be standard thresholds in a cost-effectiveness parlance, and I can go into more detail about that if you want. But the bottom line is that we suggested that to come into better alignment with the amount of benefit that they're bringing to patients, and they are, bringing benefit to patients, that you would need, uh, for instance, for second-line therapy, a 32% discount off the list price of carfizomib, uh, but up to 75 to 80% discount off of uh, elotizumab and ixazomib. Um, we also raised the policy question that multiple myeloma is not unique, um, but it does have this issue where some of the newer treatments, which are expensive in their own right, get you know, loaded on top of other treatment regimens that are already expensive. And sometimes, sometimes the drugs like carfilzomib, you take them and at least the label says that you will stop um, when you, you know, get into remission. Others are basically treat, you just keep treating. Um, and that will always you know, have an impact on the cost effectiveness. And we heard from patients a lot that they also do appreciate time off of treatment. So it's certainly a, maybe a viewed as a patient benefit as well. But that's one of the reasons why the percent discount is less for carfizomib than for the others. But we also, I was going to say, and we've talked to some drug companies about this. I'd be interested in some ways to hear if you've had this experience. But, you know, the newest trials for multiple myeloma, even beyond the frontier that we've looked at, are adding on, you know, again, another layer of, of more expensive drugs, um, the PD-1 or PD-L1 uh, drugs. And the question is, are we really going to just keep adding on costs on top of an existing base, or is there some way for the drug companies to work together to kind of create a package that can be discounted more effectively, kind of like the way that airlines have worked together so that when you travel from point A to B and B to C, if you get one ticket, even if it's two companies, it's not as expensive as adding, you know, A to B and B to C. So we provide some some ideas that if we were able to get a kind of discounts across the board on, for instance, the lenalidomide that's a core part of a lot of these regimens, you wouldn't need as big a discount on the new drug. You could take a smaller discount across all of them. So um, let me back up just a minute and ask you just kind of an overall question. Uh, so because you said you saw a lot of activity and a lot of new drugs being introduced into myeloma. But when you look at costs, um, which sounds like it's your objective is to let's get the biggest bang for the buck, let's say, um, why not choose a different cancer or disease with a larger population and then therefore more budget impact? Well, 
I mean, budget impact isn't the only thing we look at. We actually keep our ears and eyes open to a variety of sources. What we really kind of want to know is, are there things coming into the healthcare system that are keeping people up at night because they think there is some real question about the evidence or the value that's that they're you know that the health system may not deal with well, whatever that means. Um, and so we are looking, you know, but in terms of our portfolio, we will be looking later this year at multiple sclerosis, which is certainly a bigger budget impact than multiple myeloma, lung cancer. Um, we're going to be looking at uh, severe psoriasis, which I'm not sure if that is or isn't. Um, so, you know, our portfolio is, is certainly not focused in, um, but we're also looking at, a, at actually an orphan disease, primary biliary cirrhosis, because there's a new treatment coming in that's the only treatment for that. And sometimes when you get an only treatment for a disease, it, it raises, again, questions about, uh, you know, will the price in some way reflect the added value to patients? Um, are there questions about whether all patients with a condition should use it or just some? Those kinds of questions. So, it, so there was nothing, um, there's nothing about the fact that, actually, I don't even know if we knew what the budget impact of, or had any estimate of what the true budget impact of multiple myeloma was when it, it made our list of topics that we thought we would take on. And how many drugs or how many dis different disease states does ICER cover in total? Um, well, it's, again, it, it, it grows. So we, with our new funding from the Laura and John Arnold Foundation, our goal is to kind of ramp up to try to do reports on virtually all, quote-unquote, significant new drugs each year. We're not there yet, so we have to do more picking and choosing to a certain extent. But in this calendar year, again, I, actually I can't add them up, but um, in terms of the topics, Again, we looked at diabetes drugs, asthma drugs, congestive heart failure, cholesterol, um, again, the hepatitis slash you know, primary biliary, um, obviously myeloma, lung cancer, multiple sclerosis, psoriasis, and rheumatoid arthritis. That's this calendar. And next, next year's calendar is to kind of still a work in progress. So it, may, it just depends a little bit on where issues are arising around um, new drugs and other topics that we think, like palliative care, that deserve uh, or, or would benefit from our work on it as well. Mm -hmm. Now, knowing what I know now about multiple myeloma, when you mm -hmm. talk about your executive summary and kind of looking at all these different drugs, you're looking at um, them in context of drug pricing, how a new drug is priced and introduced and how effective it is. Mm -hmm. From what I've heard in talking to all the doctors is that um, and I think we should probably talk about this up front. I was going to cover it later, but I think it's um, worth talking about up front, is the complexity of myeloma. Right. So I just had a show with Dr. David Siegel at the John Thurow Cancer Center, and he was saying something to the effect of, you know, somebody can become um, refractory to lenalidomide or one of the standard core drugs that we've had for some time, and something like panobinostat or vorinostat can bring it back to life and help mm -hmm. it work again. So when you look at these drugs alone, like let's say panobinostat or an HDAC inhibitor or something, you say, well, you know, it might not be that effective um, of a drug by itself. Or the same thing with elotuzumab. You could look at that alone and say, oh, that's a pretty ineffective drug alone. But you add something else to it, and because on average, uh, according to some of the doctors, every patient presents with five different clones of myeloma at presentation, the time of diagnosis. So when you look at 
these drugs and how effective they are, I think there's a lot of concern about are you going to knock something out that could, let's say, bring something back to life again? Or, um, you know, they've, there's proven evidence now that three drugs are better than two by far mm-hmm. and that four might be even better in terms of effectivity if you're adding them together. So that's why when you're separating them apart, I think there's kind of cause for alarm on the, the patient side and different um, stakeholders that are part of this to say, you know, if we can add one on and then we get longer overall survival. I mean, the example of Velcade is a good one. So, you know, it, it had like three months better um, progression-free survival or overall survival when it was first introduced. And now in combination, much more significant. Absolutely. So great points. And actually, there, there are a lot of important points, I think, as part of your comment. So first, yes, um, I mean, you know, I, I care for multiple myeloma patients, but it was literally 30 years ago when I was a resident. And I remember how brutal. Yeah, there was nothing. <laughs> there was very little, and it was nasty, and it was short, and it was not good. And there's been tremendously important innovation um, in a variety of ways, the multiple drugs that, you know, and, and we also, we spoke to a lot of, you know, we spoke to patient groups, we spoke to a lot of uh, clinical experts to make sure that we tried to get, um, you know, at least and we're never going to be, you know, the true clinical experts. That's why we always continue to work with them, and they'll, we'll have some at our meetings. But, you know, we tried to make sure that we weren't clueless um, and naive about the variety and the heterogeneity and how these drugs are actually being used. So you're right, and we're quite aware that, and insurers are aware of this too, and I know that part of the concern here is that will this report or evidence be used to say no to something? At least as far as all the conversations I've had with insurers, not a one of them thinks that that this is a kind of condition where you force all patients to try one drug and then they have to take the next drug and you can never add them together, that there is you know, with the variety of patients, and part of this is the side effects. You know, some patients just can't tolerate a certain level of either renal or uh, or uh, diarrhea kind of side effects, whereas others can. And so there's there's no way that 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 payers, I think, want to try to create a cookbook one size fits all approach here. That doesn't mean though that we ought to, I think, take a clear look at what the studies, how the studies are being done, and what we can learn from them. Um, and we're even, in a sense, giving, I think, the drugs the benefit of a doubt because we are using the trials that existed, you know, where they were usually being tested against either Veldex or, or you know, Revlimid and, and Dexma, stuff that people just really wouldn't use by themselves as a treatment option. But we want to, you know, try to capture the progression-free survival increase Factor that into the likelihood that that will lead to overall survival. Some people still argue a lot about whether progression-free survival does translate through into overall survival. But at the end of the day, all of these drugs for many patients, as long as they're healthy enough in some way, most patients will take just about all of these drugs. And and we we know that. Mm -hmm. We know that. So I don't think that looking, but, you know, when you look at the the evidence, um, I mean, again, basically the conclusion of our report is that I would I would say again we're having a public meeting so I don't want to kind of get ahead of the discussion there too much but I would you know people reading our report would probably feel like you know there's there's no evidence to suggest that using one of these drugs over another one is quote unquote the right thing for most or all patients it has to be individualized. Mm-hmm. So my question I guess is how will this report be used and so what's the core value of the report and then how will it be used? 
Well, again, it's it's fully in the public domain, so I hope my hope is that it will be used in several ways. One is to suggest where the important evidence gaps are, in particular around ways to gather that evidence so that we so that patients and doctors as well as insurers can do a better job of comparing different combinations. Now again, that's tricky because as you said, I mean each patient ends up on a different regimen over time depending on what happens. But still, I mean, you know, oncologists need if you talk to clinical experts, they say, wow, there's still a lot that we need to know that we don't know. And we end up and they will tell you, we end up with a style. There's a style at the Mayo Clinic. There's a style at Sloan Kettering. There's a style at MD Anderson. And they're not the same. So the question is, can we figure out a way to compare styles so that at least patients can have more knowledge and, and clinicians too, obviously, about whether certain styles, and by style, for instance, one clear differentiation is some doctors, um, and I'm, I'm, I've learned this. I haven't seen it, but I've, again, from talking to patients and doctors, there's a general approach in which, especially for the, you know, the quote-unquote more aggressive forms, that they will front-load um, a lot of these drugs into multiple, you know, highly multiple kind of regimens. Other doctors tend to take a slower um, approach in which they hold some of the, you know, quote-unquote, well, some of the medicines for later and see if they can get, you know, a period of remission um, and then, you know, kind of add things more slowly. So we don't know whether one's better than the other. Um, there are passionate feelings about that, that, but no one says that there's good evidence. So anyway, I hope part of our, the use of our report is to highlight where the future research can be targeted to try to answer the key questions for patients and doctors as well as insurers. I guess mm -hmm. another area, though, is that, again, our reports generally, you know, no matter what topic we're doing, we want people to engage around the question of, of value and, and affordability. Um, you know, it, it is... It is important to recognize that, you know, there's a lot of great innovation that has been created. Partly that's because the companies, the drug companies view that they will um, make a handsome reward if they invest, and there's a lot of risk in trying to develop new drugs for multiple myeloma. But we also have, in a sense, if you step back, we have the same situation for patients with hepatitis C, where there are now hundreds of billions of dollars that might, you know, be spent to help them multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's disease, to a certain extent, we need to figure out how to share the benefits of medical innovation across the entire spectrum. So one way that I think we might, as a, as a society, at least start to talk about is the way that we've, we're doing pricing and the way that our system is set up and whether that is, is allowing us to share the benefits of medical innovation as well as possible. Um, because as you know, there are real budget crunches that I think are leading to tighter restrictions on new drugs than are necessary clinically, certainly. And there are real problems with state budgets um, around education and other things because healthcare is, is, you know, drawing in a lot of money. Now, not that as a doctor, I have no problem with our society spending a lot of money to help patients with their illness. But I think we have to figure out a way to have at least a conversation around, again, how we share the benefits of medical innovation more broadly and whether the prices that we have are sometimes really not in alignment with the amount of benefit that patients uh, enjoy from some of these and whether that needs to be a part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Well, I think there are two key points there. I think, you know, when I was diagnosed, what I wanted to see was a system, you talked about the different styles, was a system that can, that said, okay, I want to see all patients that look like me 
um, that have my same genetic subtypes or my same cytogenetics. I want to see um, the treatment options, mm -hmm. and then I want to see who had the best outcome because that's the protocol that I'm going to choose. Um, what you're trying to do, it sounds like you're trying to do it in a similar way to say, uh, you know, we don't need to be arguing about these different styles of therapy. Let's let the data decide. It's, I think the question is in how we go about doing that and what's the most comprehensive, uh, what's, what's going to give us the most well-educated decision. And um, I think patients have to be um, part of that process in a very key way because they will be contributing patient-reported outcomes right. that you can then say, okay, well, you know, patients can say and they can make choices. So I'm going to choose this because it looks like for, I let's say I have deletion 17 or I have 1114 or I have 414 or whatever mm -hmm. in my genetics and then it's evolved over time and this is this looks like the right thing for me. I mean, they're going to self-select. So a lot of that data, it doesn't exist today. I wish it did. Um, and I think that's it's um, a good objective. It's just how we go about. Um, the, the second thing you talked about is um, trying to identify the value of doing that. And um, your care value that you talk about, is it looks like it's made up of four parts, how effective something is clinically, right. the cost per outcome other benefit or disadvantages, and then contextual considerations. So um, I think that cost per outcome part is, um, you know, like people are freaking out about it because it seems like it might be the most controversial because it, it relies on this World Health Organization standard of cost per quality adjusted life years or called, I don't know how you say, qualies. Qualies, right. So, like, yeah, a generic or maybe somebody might say arbitrary financial number is applied to the value of each year of a person's life. So, so am I right in understanding that, well, that yeah, the ICER formula is measured, that, like, there's an annual measurement to a year of life, or how does that how does that work? Yeah, so the the whole approach to this was actually developed by American doctors working with health economists about 30 years ago, I guess, and it's used more explicitly by some governmental agencies in Europe and, and elsewhere, but we're pretty much the only developed country that doesn't use it these days. Um, Germany doesn't use it explicitly, but kind of in the background. Because they're really, if your job is to try to, in a sense, make some general judgment about what's a reasonable additional cost for a, a benefit, you need some measure that doesn't only look at how long it might extend a life, but you have to look at something that also captures side effects or kind of the quality of life. So for instance, if mm -hmm. we're trying to compare um, treatments for multiple myeloma with treatments for congestive heart failure, again, some might increase life longer but might have a very poor quality of life because of really severe side effects. Another one might be a little bit you know, shorter extension of life on average, but uh, much better side effects. And so that's what the quality is. It's basically just a way to combine those two things that we want. We want longer life and we want a better quality of life. So when you do that, if you're going to make a judgment about, again, if the goal is to, you know, in some ways I guess you can just pose it as the ridiculous question. If each of these treatments for multiple myeloma cost $10 million, would we think that that's, a, you know, they extend life, 
but they each cost $10 million, so if you use three drugs, that's $30 million for the first year. At, at some point, people would say, well, no, that's, that's not feasible, that's ridiculous. So if you're willing to say that we can't spend a completely unlimited amount of money for any benefit, then the tough question becomes, well, how much? What's a reasonable, quote-unquote, threshold? And that's where, again, doctors and health economists around the world have worked on this for 20, 30 years. Um, most of the, the work ends up linking it to the size of the national economy. So obviously we can afford more for health in this country than they can in a poor <clears throat> you know, African or Asian country. Um, we can afford more than English can because our economy is bigger in, in general. So it's, it's, it's a way to try to do it. So that's where... And we tend, so anyway, there, there's kind of a general consensus out there that for the United States, based on our economy and the way that we spend our funds on other things, that 100 to $150,000 per quality is the right general threshold. Now, that doesn't mean that we are saying that your life is not worth more than $100,000 per year as an individual patient. What it means is that over an entire population, when you're using additional funds to create better clinical outcomes, it kind of averages out that way. Um, and we all know that some patients will get a lot of benefit from something and some will get much less, et cetera. So that's where that, that kind of idea of a, of a cost-effectiveness threshold comes from. And we don't believe that there's one single number that we use. That's why we use a range. And we tend to tilt it towards the higher end of what health economists and others have, have said because we recognize in the United States, you know, we're not a governmental agency. Um, it's quite clear that I think most Americans don't at this point feel like we want the government to, to do this. Maybe we should, but certainly right now that's not been the consensus. So, um, you know, we are providing it and we're using kind of the high end of standard measures of cost effectiveness to help suggest um, if you want to align pricing at least with traditional measures of outcomes and reasonable extra costs for those benefits, this is what it would look like. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I think um, when you look at it objectively as a disease state per se, I think uh -huh. it's easier to come to those conclusions. And when you actually have the disease, um, it's uh, very frustrating to be um, to to try to identify like a cost per value and things like that on it because you're looking at multiple options over time, and you just want to keep that flexibility and remain as flexible as possible. I can hear in the way that you think about it, I mean, you would, you would admit that, you know, for patients with different kinds of cancer, if we want to be able to share the benefits of medical innovation, again, to use my extreme ludicrous example, you know, would we as a society want to spend $30 million a year for an extra few months of life? Not that the extra few months of life aren't important, but... If that $30 million means that we can't then help patients with hepatitis C or breast cancer, that, the, the question is whether we can all step back and say, we want the individual patient and doctor to fight as hard as possible to do the best they can, but are there some limits around the pricing, at least, for things that have benefits that we need to share broadly um, so that, in some ways, some segments of our patient population don't get taken advantage of? Because there's no one speaking up that loudly until very recently for patients with opioid addiction, they need care. 
Um, when we looked at palliative care, actually the extension of life with palliative care and its effects on quality are better than most new cancer drugs. And yet the people can't find money to hire you know, new palliative care docs. So there, there are a lot of unmet needs in our healthcare system, and I just think it's reasonable to try to figure out how we come up with a fair system across all of them to at least start the conversation about you know, where, where we want to try to set limits on some prices and, and, and you know, how do we allocate our resources the best way possible. Well, I understand that question and how you're asking it, but um, as um, I, I guess I'm coming at it from an innovator perspective, and you talked about innovation. How do you take innovation and apply it to be as, as efficient as possible? So my husband does, you know, a ton of investing, and all entrepreneurs would say, if you just gave me more money, I could solve this problem. Um, basically, it's the wrong question. It's it's how do you how do you successfully join these different stakeholder groups to come to a most efficient, most inexpensive, most curative way possible? And so this this is one effort to do that, and I think there are other alternatives that could do the, to could accomplish the same objective. Uh, when you look at inefficiencies in the the whole process, so you mentioned earlier that. Um, you know, drug pricing was one of those, and there are other medical costs that are probably one of those. So I understand your perspective, how you're looking at different diseases and how do we share the wealth, basically, or make sure that other things get taken care of. But I think it's fundamentally the, the wrong question. I think it's more of a question of how do we innovate successfully, how do we share data so that we're coming to the right conclusions faster, how do we encourage patients to help be part of that um, that process to to help identify the inefficiencies and um, and help bring them to the clinic because I think as a as a stakeholder group I've seen what they're capable of doing and adding to the process. Well, I couldn't I couldn't agree more, and I've actually been happy the the Patient Centered Outcomes Research Institute or PCORI has been sending uh, representatives to our meetings because they feel like they can learn, you know, ideas for, you know, what are the research needs that really, you know, address things that patients are most, you know, are, are really feel is important. And a lot of the structural issues that you raised are, are critically important. How do we increase the, you know, the, the efficiency or the ease of patients finding out about clinical trials? How do we structure those clinical trials so that we get the results more quickly, more efficiently, that the data actually get published and not just buried sometimes, which still happens. Um, there are a lot of really important questions about how to reconfigure the, the uh, you know the overall enterprise. I, I don't think I hope that we contribute to that conversation as as much as as you know anything else because having a more efficient drug development, testing, and approval process is 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 re, would be really helpful for everybody. I, I completely agree. So, um, you know, as a myeloma patient who has this disease, so we are so grateful for these new treatments. Mm -hmm. um, I think it will take some time to understand how they are best used and in what order and timing and staging. And that was that were some of the comments that were made at ASH by some of the myeloma specialists that it will take some time. And um, so one of the issues that um, in the ICER draft is that the criteria using this first fail as a standard, 
to affect possibly subsequent reimbursements for medication um, is, I think, something that we would like to understand better from you. So on Myeloma Crowd Radio, like I mentioned, we talked to Dr. David Siegel, and he said failing a particular treatment might actually open the door to more effective treatments, and some of these failed treatments, like I mentioned with panobinostat, could be resensitized at a later stage. So I think one of the big concerns is how does the ICER recommendation stay flexible? Because uh, when I talked to Dr. Langren, he said, you know, we used to have these European meetings on myeloma every two years. And now every six months, things are happening in six-month increments. Mm. So if you put a framework in place that says, okay, this is the best value for uh, relapse refractory patients, um, how do you stay flexible enough to have these six-month iterations? Uh, again, great great questions. So um, just to be clear, there's nothing in our report that suggests or even addresses the question of fail-first approaches to, to therapy. Oh, okay. There's nothing in there at all about that. But what I like to do at the meeting is actually to ask the insurers. Um, because, for instance, when we did that with hepatitis C, I said, so... You know, this new treatment for hepatitis C is really, really expensive. And, you know, patients taking the old treatment, 70% of them were cured. Now it's 98. But, you know, 70% of people get cured. I was being kind of, you know, devil's advocate. And I said, so, uh, you know, should we do a step therapy where they have to take the old treatment first, fail it, and then get the new treatment? And the answer was no. We don't want to do that. The old treatments are too toxic. The new treatment is just that much better than the old treatment that it wouldn't make any sense for a variety of reasons to do that. And we put that in our report. So basically we sometimes poke people to explore places where we think that no one wants to go just to make it entirely clear that, um, at least at our meeting, the opinions were that no, people don't want to go that direction. And again, I don't want to forecast exactly what's going to happen at the public meeting, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's exactly what happened because I don't see anybody viewing the evidence as suggesting uh, that this is a, a good, much less an ideal place to even contemplate uh, what's called fail-first or step therapy approaches. Um, and in terms of flexibility, that's, again, if we remember where we're starting from, you know, we don't, ICER doesn't make coverage recommendations. We don't decide what Anthem or United Healthcare or Aetna do. We put out a report, and basically they are doing that on an ongoing basis. So... When they decide, you know, and what they do is they usually have committees of doctors. I actually think they should have more committees that include patients, but that's, anyway, that's another issue maybe. But they reach out to kind of clinical advisory groups um, every once in a while, um, and they, at least on an annual basis, they have a standing process for revisiting their coverage. So if that needs to be sped up, it's, again, it's something that, uh, you know, we might want to talk about at our public meeting. Um, I don't think our report is going to slow that down. It's not like we say, this is the way the world is and it won't change, um, you mm -hmm. know, in months or 12 months. We're very often very clear how rapidly things are changing. Unlike a lot of health technology assessment groups, we actually allow um, uh, the use of information from abstracts at meetings. Um, particularly in areas where things are moving so fast, we know that if we wait for it to appear in peer-reviewed literature, it's obsolete. It's um, old. Yeah, yes, old. That, that opens up some risk because, believe me, I've seen lots of abstracts that didn't end up really kind of panning out um, when, you, uh, when it got to the 
published literature, but we still feel that in situations like multiple myeloma, it's worth taking the risk and including information, the latest information we can get. And then we say that it's still obsolete because by the time we get around, we just have to recognize that, as you said, things are moving very fast. Um, and that is one of the reasons that people in, in insurance companies tend not to put really strict um, criteria around uh, these kinds of drugs. They tend to use the FDA label and not do too much more. So what kind of follow-up do you do? If you Let's say you submit this report and it's a public huh? report and you make these recommendations. How do you stay on top of what's happening in myeloma? Like, let's say these checkpoint inhibitors come out or the CAR T-cell treatments come out, and three months down the road they're now in clinic, and somebody's, some local oncologist somewhere is, is looking at some of the recommendations and saying, well, it looks like I should use, you know, this triple combo. Um, how, how, do you, how do you stay current? Well, that's another good question. Health technology assessment, we're not set up like the NCCN where we have – you know, groups to revisit it and uh, change the guidelines. You know, we're not creating guidelines. We're t- we basically say this uh-huh. is a snapshot of the evidence. And will we ever come back and redo it? Probably. I mean, if there's another major new step change in therapy, um, maybe it is the PD-1s or maybe it's CAR-T or something completely different. Now, again, sometimes the evidence is so obvious that that's, a, that's another reason that sometimes we don't do an, uh, a report is people say, no, everybody knows what to do. <laughs> We're going to use this drug, use it for everybody we can, and the price is either immaterial or we think the price will be reasonable or whatever. Then we don't really have much to add to that discussion. It's more where people are kind of swimming around, um, kind of wondering what to do with either new things or even older things. So we, we just have to be very humble and say that, you know, we try to be clear that our results are not guidelines and that uh, we do not uh, have a a formal update process whereby every six months they are updated. Uh, There are groups like NCCN that have a, a, that that's kind of their mission, and it's it's not ours. Yeah. So, and what I've heard from some of the doctors, and you probably heard this too, is that um, some of it is just learning through experience. So having the flexibility and the creativity to say, I'm going to use these in combination, and then maybe I do a retrospective study and see whom they whom they worked best for. So, you know, let's say people with, you know, 1114 or something like that mm-hmm. do best with this triple combination over that. Um, how do the recommendations allow physicians to use this kind of professional judgment? And I think we both agree that having different philosophies of treatment huh. is not necessarily that great. Uh, it frustrates patients, and, um, they're, you know, it's frustrating for patients that you'll go see a myeloma specialist somewhere, and you'll see one across the country, and they both have radically different opinions. So I think we both agree that that having data around it would give us better outcomes. Um but that's a lot of data, and the systems don't exist yet. So a lot of these doctors are saying, okay, well, we're doing that through clinical trials. So how do you, how does the reporting influence um, this learning through experience? Um, another great question. So um, we would, I think we'd both agree that there's a difference between doctors just kind of ad-libbing and saying what I do is an art and you can never study it and in my 10 years or 20 years of experience I know what I'm doing. That's not the kind of 
learning from experience that I think other no. patients learn no. from. So we want them to be organized in, in clinical trials. And through a clinical trial, you know, they'd have to get approval from an institutional review board to make sure that patients understand that they have other options of treatment, they don't have to enroll, you know, what are the risks and benefits, and hopefully there is a system to learn from that. And um, usually, you know, our, our report would probably not have, you know, much of, of an inter, interference with that. Now, I, there are some insurers like Anthem, I think, that have, you know, pathways where doctors will get preferentially reimbursed if they use a certain regimen or a set of regimens. Usually what they do is they go to NCCN and they take, you know, several out of the multiple quote-unquote appropriate regimens and they negotiate a, a price and they decide to set, um, you know, some of the less expensive but quote-unquote equally effective regimens as the kind of the preferred regimens. It doesn't mean that patients can't get the others. It just means that the doctors themselves might have a financial incentive to use certain regimens over others. Our report, I, again, I, your question, you may know more than I do. I'm not really 100% sure, but within a clinical trial, usually the health plans have an arrangement so that it either supersedes. If there are patients are in a trial, that um, I, I think that the payment is not structured the same as for patients who are not in a clinical trial. So that, But basically, your point is well taken. Yeah, it depends. Yeah, we, it should, depends. we should have systems so that people who are doing formal clinical trials with a goal of expanding the learning in the future, um, you know, they, they should, well, sometimes they have to seek funding from the NIH or somewhere to help them gather the data. But in general, we should try to have reimbursement systems that allow for that because we're never going to get a lot of head-to-head -head trials, you know, before FDA approval. We know that. So we need to do some good trials afterwards. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons that we created this show is to encourage patients to participate in clinical trials. And there are things I think that groups like yours and the insurers could do, um, which will be kind of one of my following suggestions. But one question that I have before, and I know I want to open this up to color questions, is how do you go about engaging stakeholders and especially patients in this process? Because I have one friend, Yellick, who's coming to the meeting, yes. who is, I, it looks like, the only patient representative um, speaking there. So how do you engage these patients who, and there are many that are actually like me, that have taken this deep dive into our own disease. We are highly made, motivated to um, cure ourselves, basically, and want to do everything as efficiently and as curatively as possible. Right. So um, we definitely have have tried and definitely recognize that we need to do uh, we need to figure out better ways to to do this. So what we currently do is when we are getting ready to announce a topic, we um, basically do a scan and try to figure out what are the key patient advocacy groups with whom we can connect to learn more about this topic. So for here, here it was, you know, the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation and the International Myeloma um, Foundation. Um, and then we often end up talking to other patients who either, because we put out a press release saying we're going to do this topic and we welcome public comment. And then we have several different cycles. The first part of our whole process is what we call the scoping of the review. And that's where we actually make the, the final judgment of which drugs or whatever it is we're going to look at, what's the real question we're trying to answer you know, for which patients, you know, what are the comparators going to be? We put that out as a draft 
after having talked to a lot of clinical experts and patients to try to get our own grounding. But then we put that out for public comment. And again, we get lots of comments um, from people, doctors, patients, um, and certainly the manufacturers. We also engage with them at the very beginning. And then we start off on our review, basically, once we kind of uh, have set that up. And then we do our review. Um, and at the end of that, we have another public comment. We have a press release, public comment on the draft of the evidence review. Um, and through that time, actually through the months we're doing that, we're usually trying to figure out how we're going to, you know, put together our public meeting. And we always have a public comment phase at every meeting, and I think there are going to be six, five or six patients who have signed up to give comments. Yalak is, well, he's going to be, I'll talk about Yalak in a second. Um, anyway, there's a public comment phase, but we also have, we just have lots of phone calls. So I don't know how many phone calls we've had with MMRF, but, um, and again, it doesn't always mean that people are, and what I hope is that over time people will gain a better understanding of kind of what our intent is and, and what we do. Um, as I said, I think we need to do a better job of having conversations like this one today where people can have a longer time to get to know us and to ask questions. Um, but anyway, then at the meeting we have the public comment, but we have, um, as I mentioned, we kind of have general you know, public representatives on, on the CPAC Council, but as far as what we call our policy roundtable, we have, uh, you know, insurers, one or two. Usually, we have a couple of clinical experts, and we have at least one or two. We have two patients uh, for this panel, so they are part of the discussion. And I run it kind of like Phil Donahue, and that's where again I raise questions about, you know, what do patients think of this? What do patients need? What's missing? What about the future research? What about, you know, the the value and the coverage issues? And then we, do, I just try to draw that out in a conversation that involves, you know, that panel that includes at least one or two patients. Mm-hmm. So we need to do better. Well, one of the, yeah. One of the things, real quickly, that yeah, I would suggest that a panel like a, of eight to ten patients would give you a um, a very good uh, overview, I guess, of the different patient experiences. And there are a lot of patients that look at it very academically. I mean, they're very studious about their disease, and um, they they can give a very deep dive both into the science and into the different approaches we have several patients that are on our advisory board that help craft um, clinical trials and things. So Yeah. No, I mean, I again, part of, part of what we think we need to improve is our scanning the horizon. I don't know how we missed you, Jenny. I really don't. It, it, I mean, it would have been great to have talked to you at the beginning of our process like we did with some of the other groups. Um, so we need to do that better. And we're also going to be working on a template um, because, you know, we think – we know how these groups can help us by giving us perspectives like you just talked about. But in some, for some of the patient groups, they're much less sophisticated, and we've, we're finding that we, need, we probably need to create a template that they fill out, um, at least as part of the process. For others, we just need to be quiet and let them talk. Um, you know, we've learned a lot about, you know, I guess I mentioned it had been a long time since I'd personally treated patients, and I'm just, a, you know, a single doc anyway. So we learned a lot about the different kinds of roller coasters that patients are on, um, you know, the importance now of having oral options that can really, for some patients, make a major difference. Um, the whole idea that this this used to be a condition for which patients usually were told it's a very grim prognosis, you have a few months to get your things in order, and now they're living for years, and that may mean that they have the opportunity to be alive for the next step change in, in innovation. So We've heard all of this, but I do think we need and are working on having a more structured approach to making sure that we capture a broader set of patient inputs. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I think it'd be really helpful for you because, um, you know, you look at myeloma patients, we face our mortality every day. And the greatest gift that each of us is given, whether we have a disease or not, is the gift of life. And our second greatest gift is the right to direct that life. So if there's a perception that either one of those is being am- impacted by analysis or a report, um, you'll you'll get a visceral reaction <laughs> because you're impacting those two core gifts. Overall, I think we have the same objective, um, is let's find the very best treatment option for an, each individual patient. So if I could, can I share a couple ideas of how I think your group could um, could help do that? Oh, absolutely. Well, I, we talked a little bit about this before we started the show, um, clinical trial participation. So I would suggest, that especially insurers, um, if they want to accelerate the rate of a cure um, and they can leverage patients as partners in that effort, if we all, as a community, insurers, drug companies, um, patients, doctors, encourage greater participation in clinical trials, and every patient was introduced to this concept as they began their treatment, we could really achieve results similar to childhood leukemias when they have over 80% participation rates, and we adult cancers have 3 to 5 participation rates. It's sad, and it's just pathetic. So can we get to a cure faster and save money? Yeah, I think we can by participating in clinical trials. And I think that's a group effort. I think Mm -hmm. that's something you can suggest. I think it's something we can suggest. And we could definitely work together on that topic because it would speed things up dramatically. It would cut rates in half or more. Good. And um, I think... What you said earlier, what you're, it looks to me like, just this is my perception and probably no one else's, but um, you're trying to take data and standardize data so you can make um, clinical, you know, to help make clinical decisions about, you know, we shouldn't have all these different opinions, we should just let the data decide, which is really what patients would like to do too. I mean, they would really like, we need more data. <laughs> You know, we don't need opinions. We need data because you go to a local oncologist, they're going to treat you with what they might be familiar with, and they might be confused about adding in these new um, drug treatment options because mm-hmm. simply because they just don't know how to do it. Right. Um, so I think that's something that we could all do together. But I think um, as we do it together, then, you know, there's less there's less unawareness, I guess, on the patient's side, knowing what's happening and and are, am I going to be, you know, prevented from getting the treatment that I need because you're having that kind of reaction. So right. if that's not the objective, let's, let's involve patients so they can give you that feedback up front and you're not getting it on the back end. But right. I think I think we have the same, I think we share the same objectives. Is let's get to the, let's get to a cure as fast as possible so we're not treating this as this chronic disease with four drugs for the rest of my life. I, that's not something that I want as a patient. So Absolutely. That would and be great. It, you, don't, you don't want doctors just kind of ad-libbing and not really knowing what they're doing and not paying attention to the process of educate, you know, learning from each patient's experience. I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. So that, these, are, these are helpful. I mean, these are issues that, uh, you know, since I'm moderating the policy roundtable at the meeting on Thursday, I can I can certainly bring up and kind of have it hammered home there at the meeting as well that these are important issues. 
But I also hear your mm-hmm. message about, again, trying to figure out a way to work proactively uh, earlier in the process as well with a broader set of patients so that, um, you know, the, the, the general reaction uh, is more balanced, I guess. Because there's still, I mean, there are still going to be some people who think that any diminution in the price is somehow going to reduce innovation in that space. Um, and I, I don't think that's true, but it, it's always going to be part of the discussion. Well, I think that's a concern for patients because there's been so much innovation in the myeloma space. Right. And we've had doctors now say the word cure for the first time in the last, I would say, two years. And when I started doing the interviews, it was more like, well, this is a chronic disease. We're just going to be able to manage it. And now with some of the different um, treatments and treatment combos, um, you know, Dr. Siegel, I've mentioned him a few times. I've done lots of interviews with lots of different doctors, but um, he said, you know, we might even have the cure now because it's just a matter of for which combination is right for which patient. And we might be able to do that. Let's say, you know, is it stem cell transplant up front or later? Um, you know, all the all the efforts are good. They're just not cohesive. Right. And the data sharing is a major problem yeah. that's preventing us from coming to those conclusions. So... Yep. No, I well, agree. Well, I want to open it okay. up for caller questions, so if you don't mind, for a few minutes. I know we're um, at our hour, but we'll um, I'm okay. open I'm it okay. up also. So, is sure. that okay? Yeah, All right. Okay. So um, we have a caller at 992-4568. Go ahead with your question. Oh, let me hang on a second while we bring them on. Uh, am I online? Okay, go ahead with your question. Uh-huh. Yes, this is Gary Peterson. I'm the editor of uh, MyLomaSurvival.com, which is a a website. And um, actually, I've had a few blog posts uh, centered on just um, you know this uh, particular topic. And and it's my concern and my fear. And 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 to tell you the truth, I've I've heard you, and you are eloquent. I mean, unbelievably eloquent in the way that you present this. And I'm sure the folks in uh, Europe at NICE are are equally as eloquent in uh, how they explain um, how you can put a value on life. And and from a patient's perspective, what we see is that your ICER is, in my opinion, very similar to NICE, at least in the way that you um, are are approaching um, you know the the whole cost per quality, and as a result, what we what what I what I see here, what I what I have this sense of, is that you're overlaying a nationalized healthcare um, system of uh, allocation onto the American system of uh, of healthcare, and and what I mean by that. Is that um, is that what they do in Europe with Nice, which is you know what I see you guys doing, is finding a way to allocate uh, uh, resources that are very very limited uh, to the healthcare process. Now, what that means from your executive summary for multiple myeloma, and I think the, I'm going to say two things about that. First of which is that. Uh, our drugs are approved for second and third line. But generally, what you see happening is that it always, because of our disease, 
And now we have so many clones up front. Our disease is usually best treated uh, the most effective when you use multiple drugs early on when the clones haven't had a chance to morph into more aggressive clones. So, so what you find is that our, you know, our, you know if, if um, in our first relapse it's sec- uh, half as long as the third relapse, is half as long as the fourth relapse. Mm-hmm. So if you can bring that back further in the process, you have better outcomes. And that doesn't show up in your analysis whatsoever. And so the fear, the fear is, given what you show in your executive summary, is that none of these drugs are effective at their current values. And what Blue Cross Blue Shield of California has already said is that they're going to use this to limit or reject the use of certain drugs, but also to negotiate the price of those drugs. And I'm okay with them negotiating the price of those drugs. What I'm not okay with is overlaying a system that is used uh, for nationalized health care over our system, which is not that. And so that's my fear. My fear is that you're going to limit our options just when they've exploded on the scene, and we have all these great things in our future, and, and, and they're going to be taken away. Well, I so that's, our, that's my fear, and I tell you what, that's every patient's fear, and you've done nothing, absolutely nothing to, to, to put that fear to sleep. Oh, well, I'm, I'm sorry you feel that way. Um, I don't, as I mentioned, I'm unaware of any insurer um, that is interested in, in saying no to any of these drugs. I do know that clinical experts, some of them at least, would disagree with your contention that we know that treating patients with you know, uh, all of the drugs or a very large number of them up front is definitely better than a, a slower kind of sequential approach. Then you're not informed, unfortunately. Yeah, well, so I, I would have to agree too, but because I, well, I've heard that multiple times that if you treat um, and you can eliminate the clone up front, uh, you're more likely to stay in a longer remission. Right. I mean, I, I've heard that from some clinical experts and from some who say we actually have no evidence that that's the case. It's a, it's a. But, so I'm not. Uh, I think the I evidence know. evidence is is so is so overwhelming in that favor that. Uh, which, well, we could we could talk about which studies would would have demonstrated that, but I'm I'm not aware of any. And again, our 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 job was to try to kind of bring information about the newer drugs, in particular, that had just been launched. And so, obviously, we're not going to have years of data, uh, you know, on, on them. You know, we we will, we will want them, but we don't have it right now. Um, I, I would I would say that again. Part of the concern about, you know, any approach to try to judge value, I hope it can be grounded in where we are now. What I fear personally is that health plans that are asked to try to, you know, re- restrain health care costs in the short term will ignore the longer-term benefits of drugs like these and will feel forced in some way or will take options to restrict care, not just for multiple myeloma, but for lots of other conditions, um, unless we start to have some discussion around how pricing can align with that value. Believe me, if the PD-1s end up, end up being the home run that I hope they are, or CAR-T or whatever, 
we're going to want to pay those companies and 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 pay for those drugs extremely handsomely because they will have brought really important benefits to patients. I guess just part of the question is, again, can we at least talk about the idea that if a new drug adds very little, whether it's myeloma or something else, if it adds very little or no established benefits to patients, should it have a, a, a high premium on the price? There was a famous case of a... There was a famous case of a cancer drug a couple years ago um, that Sloan Kettering decided not to use because it was no better but priced twice as high. And so the, the question is, can we at least have that conversation? Because in my mind, that's what's going to benefit patients as well as continued innovation is making sure that we can price it fairly and make sure that it's affordable for patients and the healthcare system. Yeah, and I think that um, you know, one of the things that, uh, if you look at uh, uh, Mayo's clinical proceedings, Dr. Raj Kumar did an analysis on that, and if you've seen it, he comes up with some great recommendations on how to rein in some of the issues that we have with regard to uh, the monopoly, monopoly uh, pricing mm-hmm. Excuse me, of, uh, of cancer drugs. And, 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 you know, like, for example, letting Medicare, um, uh, negotiate prices because we pay twice as much as they do in Europe for the same exact drugs. You know, so why can't we do that? And and when you figure that we have 149 billion dollars worth of drugs that we we uh, spend every year in the in that uh, B and D program for Medicare, we could save a ton of money. You know, and we should do that. You know, there's things that we can do right now within the, our own system without overlaying something from nationalized health um, care over the top that we can, we can come up with similar savings or even better. And the fact of the matter is, if we're going to have an ICER or a NICE, then I suggest we go to the nationalized health care system, save, you know, the 9% that we pay over and above what the Europeans pay, or 19%, they're 9%. You know, and they have better uh, outcomes than we do. So, you know, if we're gonna if we're gonna overlay uh, the the nice and icer system on top of ours, then we might as well have nationalized healthcare because because we're we're gonna limit our options just like they do in Europe, where they had to fight tooth and nail, tooth and nail for Revlimid. You know, they had to determine that that your quality that you come up with, right? Mm-hmm. That the quality for, for uh, a cancer patient with, was 1.4 of that for a, a, a person who was totally well. Mm-hmm. They, they had to come up with that. They had to increase it because of that. And we, you know, it, it's kind of one of those things where when you look at quality, poor Stephen Hawkins has a negative quality. No, but no, convince him that. No, he doesn't. That's a, that's a yes, he does. Up. He can't take care of himself. He has a poor quality of life. It's negative based no, I'm, on I'm sorry, I'm sorry, know, the information sir. from NICE. No, I'm sorry. From whomever you got that information, that's just completely false. Completely. All you got to do is look at the NICE website. No, the idea that Read Steve... Read their information. I, I'm, I'm sorry, sir. You're, you're wrong. No, I, I beg to differ. The idea because, well, because according to the according to the information, and it's just the information, and we'll leave it at that, is that they said that you can go negative if, in fact, you can't take of your you can't take take care of yourself. That you have a poor quality of life, your your qual can be negative. 
So I'll leave it at that. That's what they say. So well, that's why I said it about Stephen Hawkins. Right. Just one last quick point about the quality. Remember, this is an American invention used by countries around the world, and it's, been by American health health, and it's been used by American health economics, uh, you know, specialists and doctors for 30 years. This is It's nothing new or kind of nefarious from overseas. They use it more explicitly as part of a public process in England. Other countries use it in a variety of different ways. But it's the core approach to trying to judge the long-term value of healthcare innovation. So how we want to use it and how it's applied is, is certainly important. But I just don't want it to be necessarily mischaracterized as some kind of alien uh, national health system tool. Mm-hmm. Well, that's where mm-hmm. it is right now. It, you know, but I, I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it to the next questioner. Um, but I, I guess my point being is, I just want to let you know that this is something that most patients feel is going to limit their ability to obtain care. Well, I hope that we can uh, assuage that concern, um, and my hope is that they will have greater access to care that will benefit them. Um, in part by helping over the long term to align the prices with the value that real patients do get. Okay, thanks. Thanks for your question and for the answer. I appreciate it. Yeah, I think we've, as myeloma patients, we look at myeloma as an international disease. And so we're looking at, um, we know specialists, you know, I've interviewed specialists in Spain, in Germany, in the UK, in, um, you know, different places. We see places like Australia, and in Australia, they're crazy. They say you can um, have one drug at a time, which is insane. So you take dexamethasone until you relapse dex, and then you take Velcade until you relapse Velcade. It's the most, um, you know, inane way of treating myeloma that I've ever seen. So... You look at the UK and, you know, people like Gareth Morgan, who started Myeloma UK, he's now at UAMS because of the flexibility of, um, you know, creating clinical trials. And, and Europeans have had to collaborate together to, and most of their patients are in clinical trials because it's the only way they can get access to these new drugs. Mm-hmm. So we we are looking at it from an international perspective and saying, you know, what we have right now, the innovation uh, levels right now in the U.S. are just unparalleled. So I think the concern is that anything that would restrict that level of innovation and speed it up, and we feel like I think patients as a whole have been now told by um, some of the researchers we're very close to a cure. So I think that's the major concern. Okay, our I, second uh, question. Oh, no, go ahead. Oh, I'll just real quick, I was going to say, I was talking to an old uh, Texas oil man the other day, and I, he was for some reason he was asking me about what I did, and I told him and some of the issues around how drugs are priced. And he actually told me, he said, you know what's interesting in the oil business, we only got real innovation when the prices dropped. When everybody could get whatever they wanted for the next barrel of oil, no one cared about innovation. They just kind of threw money at things and they would get it back. He said the best innovation, the most focused, efficient innovation we ever had was when the price of oil dropped significantly. So I, every once in a while I think we're not talking about shutting off innovation. We're talking about making it smarter and more focused yeah. and coming to market, honestly, at a price that's aligned with the value. So that, I mean, I, I don't feel great about the international situation. Um, and there are lots of issues at hand, but one of them is why don't the drug companies price it so that the 
countries feel like they can afford it. That's not the only answer to this situation. But I just have a hard time believing that all these other countries are evil it's in some way. Um, they're, and, you know, it's, it's ultimately up to the drug company to price it as they, you know, as they feel they can. I know they need to make a profit. Don't believe mm-hmm. it. Don't believe in profits. But it's all a balance. And so the question is, how can we strike the kind of balance in our country that will get us the innovation, but hopefully not having us pay two to three to six times as much for these drugs as other countries? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think um, that's yeah important. We have another caller at 9901090. Go ahead with your question. Uh, yes, uh, I, I have a question, but based on the, the uh, conversation that just took place, I'll have a comment before my question. Uh, and I think it's important for everybody out there to realize that NICE is United Kingdom specific. So when you talk about Europe, it's a lot of different things and it's a lot of different systems. So for example, um, if you look at countries like France and Germany and uh, certain countries in Scandinavia, they actually have higher survival rates in myeloma than we do in the United States. Um, And in France, a lot of that is attributable to the fact that 60 to 80% of myeloma patients uh, take part in in clinical trials. So I think, you know, we don't have the greatest system in the world in the United States, but we neither do we have the worst uh, in other parts of the country, in other parts of the world, I should say. Um, there is a balance and there are areas of excellence. I mean, even, Jenny, you even fund uh, uh, through your crowdfunding a research project in Germany. So there's good stuff going on in other parts of the world, and I think we need to recognize that. And, and again, I think it's important to note that NICE, is UK specific. It's, it has nothing to do with anything that happens outside of the UK. So anyway, that's my comment. My question comes back to the American point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that, that concerns me about the ICE report and where I don't see the flexibility, and I, I looked through your report and I saw an indication uh, specific pricing issues, uh, you even mentioned the idea of uh, how it would affect off-label drug use. And in the United States, for most cancers, most drugs that are prescribed to patients are prescribed off-label. But we have a flexibility and we have insurers and so forth that will pay for that. Medicare even pays for off-label indications now on cancer drugs after they did that with thalidomide. Right. And even in your report on indication-specific pricing, you mentioned that the drugs that would be selected under that system that you propose would have uh, minimal off-label usage, uh, to quote uh, what I'm looking at right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so what would your recommendations mean for the off-label prescription of drugs? And the other question I have is, if wouldn't your system ultimately lead to more layers of bureaucracy and more layers of reporting uh, and wouldn't that counter the idea of what you're trying to do? So uh, I, I'm just very unclear about that and I'd like to know your point of view about that. Sure, thanks. Thank you. Uh, I'm glad you're able to navigate our website to, to find some of these things. We've just updated it so it's, it's, it's actually nice to hear that people are able to find some of these things. So our off-label, we, we did a, a policy paper on off-label. Um, no, sorry, it wasn't on off-label. It was on indication-specific pricing, a completely 
kind of disconnected from our evidence reports because, as you know, some of the insurers and manufacturers have started to create some contracts around uh, setting up an indica by indication-specific pricing means in some way trying to pay differently for a drug depending on what purpose it's used for. Um, so I guess conceptually, if a drug is really, really effective at treating gastric cancer but really not that effective at treating um, kidney cancer, you'd want to pay more for it for gastric cancer and less for kidney. That's the basic idea. Um, the point our, our report made about off-label is that just when uh, to do these kinds of arrangements in the U.S. system, manufacturers and um, health plans have to talk to each other and make up a contract. And if a drug happens to be used a lot off-label, it just makes it not a great candidate for an indication-specific pricing approach because manufacturers aren't allowed to talk about off-label uses. So they can't really sit across the table from a health plan and talk about how to pay for an off-label use. The, the, uh, the law forbids that. So that was the only point. It was kind of the cart and horses. If a drug is already used a lot off-label, it's probably not a good, that good a candidate for indication-specific pricing. So in, in, in any area of cancer, for instance, where there's a lot of off-label um, use, um, again, we hope that that's supported by some good evidence that the compendia or other people recognize. But if it is that way, then it just makes it a really uh, difficult, if not impossible, area in which to uh, have manufacturers and, and payers try to contract around indication-specific use. So I hope that, that, that was clear. I'm unfortunately not really sure what you mean about why our approach would add more layers of bureaucracy um, necessarily, unless you meant the indication-specific pricing piece specifically. Do you want to clarify that? Yeah, I meant that. It, it, again, I, I'm just uh, speculating as I look at it, but it, it, it seems to me that, well, for example, maybe, I may be mixing my metaphors here. So as, I, as you, let's go back to the idea that you talked about, about you might pay more um, for a drug if it's more effective and less for a drug if it's less effective. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to me that that concept in and of itself would create another layer of bureaucracy uh, because you would have to determine that. You would have to gather data yes. about that. Uh, and so that, that was what I meant about that. And, and, and even along those lines, let's take a specific cancer like myeloma, since that's what we're talking about. Uh -huh. uh, and you have a, a cancer that's first, second, third, fourth line uh, has treatments in those, in those different lines. And if you find that, a, that the same drug is more effective on the second line than it was on the front line, would under indication-specific pricing, would that mean that the more effective it becomes, the more expensive that particular drug becomes, even for the same disease type, even, but, but you differentiate between, uh, between uh, uh, progression? Uh, yeah, I guess conceptually. I mean, what's funny, most people have read our report, uh, which basically came out of some background work but uh, arose from the discussion we had at our meeting between manufacturers and payers. Most people have interpreted our report on indication-specific pricing as a cautionary tale that it sounds conceptually easy, but it's actually really hard to put into okay, practice. Okay, that's the conclusion I drew. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's, that's basically what I think our report says. So you're right, it, it raises administrative issues around where the data are going to come, who's going to track them, who's going to reconcile which patients used it for this reason versus that reason. We already have an incredibly Byzantine process through which drugs get from point A to, you know, through to the, the patient. So 
it, it, I'm not sensing a huge amount of enthusiasm to do a lot of indication-specific pricing in the U.S. system. Okay, so you don't see indica indication-specific pricing as being part of your recommendations uh, that, that you're going to be coming out with for myeloma? No, I, act I actually hadn't even thought of it as something I would raise at the policy roundtable. Um, I guess I could, but no, my, it's really just a bump on the on the landscape at this point. I think some payers and manufacturers want to give it a try for a variety of reasons, but um, again, it, there are lots of hurdles to it, and this does not, to me, multiple myeloma certainly does not present itself as the kind of poster child for a good area to think about it. Okay. Thank you so much. Sure. Well, Dr. Pearson, we're so grateful that you spent time with us today, and um, we know we're asking you some difficult questions. So I'm grateful for your the grace that you've answered them. Well, I'm um, grateful that I'm a, I just want to add I, I'm grateful that people are are honest. I mean, this is part of what I hoped ICER would do, which is to generate honest discussion, and that doesn't always make it easy. So I don't mind tough questions, and I don't need to try to convince everybody that I'm right. I like I like the conversation and the broader thinking that this makes all of us do. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it presents an opportunity, and so just in closing, I think we have, I do have this unique opportunity to create a patient-centric model for value where we invest in the genomic diagnostics that you mentioned earlier to make sure the right drug goes to the right patient at the right time. And I think this is an area where we need serious collaboration among all the stakeholders, the insurers, the pharmaceutical industries, groups like yours, clinicians, research, and most of all, bringing patients and their advocates into that conversation because there is much that they can add that's very valuable. Thank you, Jenny. That's very well said. And since you won't be on our policy roundtable, um, I hope you can, I hope YELAC represents these views very strongly, and I will be sure to uh, to bring them up as well. Well, YELAC's terrific. You'll enjoy working with him. Good. Okay. Thank you so much for joining okay. us today. Thank you, everybody. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Myeloma Crowd Radio. Join us for future shows to learn more about the latest in myeloma research and what it means for you. salon and the grocery store i'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store groceries through instacart delivered to my door i don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store